You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. We start with that breaking news. Vancouver City Council approving a new bike lane on the Camby Street Bridge. And it means that a southbound lane for cars is going away. Jordan Armstrong joins us now in Vancouver at the south end of the Camby Street Bridge with more on that decision. Jordan? And Sophie, you can see the backup heading out of downtown Vancouver just over my shoulder there with the current three lanes of vehicle traffic. Soon there will be just two, but the city claims drivers should not notice much of a difference. They say the current congestion is due to the intersections at either end, not the number of lanes on the Camby Bridge. There certainly was some public criticism of the bike lane plan last month when the city held a public hearing, but today, decision day, none of those critics showed up to City Hall. The plan easily peddled its way through council with only the opposition NPA voting against it. The project will see the southbound right-hand vehicle lane turned into a a dedicated bike lane. Cost estimated at $600,000. The city says since 2010, cycling trips over the Camby have increased by 86%. We've seen an increase in the number of conflicts, an increase in the number of injuries, and so we're creating more space for cyclists to improve safety. To remove a lane concerns me. Uh, I think there are alternatives that could exist, uh, including Maybe we should be looking at a bike bridge if, it's, if there's such a demand for bike routes across the uh, False Creek area. Well, it's, it's, it's a lot cheaper than being on a sidewalk because you know, people walk around all the time and chance running into them, right? I think it's a good idea. Should have done that a long time ago. I honestly think we have enough bike lanes. They're choking traffic down so much that it's becoming unlivable around here. Oh, no, that's no good. <laughs> I don't agree with that. Why not? There's not enough lanes out there anyway. Hmm. All right. Well, drivers and cyclists alike will want to know, Jordan, what's the timeline of this? Yeah, Sophie, construction begins almost right away. The lane should be up and running by the spring. The city insists this is a trial. I know some people will roll their eyes when they hear that. These pilot projects always seem to become permanent, but this one is perhaps different because it won't be evaluated until next year when there will be a new mayor and council at City Hall. Sophie? All right, we'll see what happens. Jordan Armstrong on the Canby Bridge. A sentence has been handed down in a tragedy that began as a petty argument in a nightclub and ended with the senseless death of a young woman on the Granville Strip. Our Grace Key has the details on the sentence, and Grace, Crown didn't get what they wanted here, and you also got some reaction from the victim's parents. Yeah, the Crown had originally asked for about four and a half years. In the end, what was handed down was a two-year sentence. No satisfaction. Um not going to bring Lauren back. For Burns and Joanne McClellan, the emotional and painful legal proceedings against their daughter's killer has come to an end. 28-year-old Lauren McClellan was fatally attacked outside the Caprice nightclub in downtown Vancouver in 2016. Samantha Doolin was sentenced to two years in jail, followed by three years probation after pleading guilty to manslaughter. Crown had asked for four and a half years. It doesn't seem fair, but but there's nothing fair about this process. It wasn't fair that it happened in the first place. 
McClellan and Doolin had an altercation inside the nightclub. Crown said Doolin was upset after staff told her to leave. They were both escorted out, and on the street, it turned violent. McClellan fell to the ground, and Crown said that's when Doolin fatally kicked McClellan in the head while she held her arms up to defend herself. Certainly the judge recognized the, the senselessness and the, um, the violence and the brutality of the attack. Um, so I was glad that that actually was recognized. In court, Doolin's Aboriginal background was noted as well as the sexual abuse she had suffered. She has a young child and in federal prison, she will have access to programs. We do want her hopefully to get better. It doesn't do anybody any good to not see her uh, move on in life. She has a child. Burns and Joanne say the saving grace for their healing has been to focus on Lauren and not on anger. Anger is, is just a waste. It's something that you find easy to get, but difficult to get rid of. There will never be closure on the loss of our daughter. That, that will be with us forever. Now, Lauren's parents say that uh, their daughter always wanted to help others. She actually wanted to go into counseling. So the Lauren McCullen Legacy Fund has been set up at the Vancouver Foundation. So they will be able to make uh, various uh, donations to charities that their daughter would have supported. Chris? All right. Grace Key reporting in Vancouver. Thanks, Grace. A 15-year-old girl has been struck and killed in a crosswalk along a busy stretch of road in Burnaby. It happened this morning along Caribou Road near the Highway 1 overpass. The driver stayed at the scene and the area was closed for hours as RCMP investigated. So far, there's no word on exactly what caused the crash, but residents in the area have expressed concerns in the past and the crosswalk has been the subject of a review by the city. We do know what it is believed that the female was an international student and was not attending school in Burnaby. Um, we also are looking for witnesses. This is a danger that is lurking here, so we want the city to act more before more lives are taken. It is painful to see a young girl who just got out of her way, went her way in the morning, is not going back home. And uh, so we, we hope something good can come out of this. The city of Burnaby says it is looking at safety enhancements to the crosswalk, but a traffic signal may not be the best solution. Changes are also coming to the intersection just south of where the tragedy occurred. Anyone who witnessed the collision is asked to call Burnaby RCMP. The Bank of Canada raised its key interest rate today to 1.25%. That's the highest it's been since 2009. Tomorrow, the big banks will follow suit, bumping their lending rates. Aaron MacArthur explains what that could mean for your mortgage. The Bank of Canada throwing the brakes on our love affair with debt. People hearing the news of the rate hike, glad to have locked in. It's comfortable right now, but yes, I'm scared after, that's, uh, after that five years. For kids thinking about buying a first home, Another strike against affordability. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. <laughs> One day, maybe. The Bank of Canada bumped the key lending rate a quarter point today. The third hike in less than a year. It's not all bad news. The data that we have received since last October have been generally stronger than expected. With maybe two more quarter point hikes to come and fixed term mortgages already higher, borrowers refinancing this year are asking a lot of questions. We see that people are still actually making sound judgment. They are st staying within their means, 
but there are people that may be outside of their means that were um, in variable rate mortgages that it could be a little bit more concerning if all of a sudden their payments start increasing. Every quarter of a percentage point more means about $13 more a month for every $100,000 borrowed. A million dollar mortgage, about $130 more a month. Maybe it's affordable in the short term, but it adds up. Debt counselors have seen it firsthand. Inevitably what happens is people start uh, uh, paying their mortgage no matter what because that's their home. Uh, meanwhile, uh, other bills don't necessarily get paid. The one potential hiccup on the horizon for higher interest rates is the uncertainty over NAFTA. If the U.S. pulls out of the deal, all bets are off. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Nearly six months after Christy Clark stepped down, a by-election for Kelowna West has been set for Valentine's Day. Clark announcing her resignation back on August 4th. Under the Constitution Act, a by-election must be called within six months. Advanced voting will be available from February 6th to February 11th. Keith Baldry joins us now with more on the candidates and why this riding is so key. Keith? Yeah, Sophie, it's key because right now the NDP enjoys a three-seat majority. But if the Liberals can put this uh, seat back in the win column, and they've got to be favored to win this because they've had it, uh, it uh, and, and the precursor of the Social Credit Party for decades, it's a very strong, safe, uh, liberal seat, then that majority shrinks to just a two-seat majority. It becomes much more precarious. So a lot of interest in political circles on the outcome of this on February 14th. Uh, who's running? Ben Stewart, who held the seat for a number of years and gave it up to Christy Clark so she could take it in a by-election in 2013. He's back. He's going to be representing the B.C. Liberals. Uh, Robert Stupka of the Green Party is uh, going to be running there. The Greens are hopeful they can at least achieve second uh, place status there. And Shelley Cook is also going to be running she, for the NDP. She represented the NDP in the 2013 ele- or 2017 election. Now, again, uh, why it's important, because whoever wins this seat, and if it is a B.C. Liberal, they will take the seat sometime in late February or early March. That will allow the NDP to pass at least one confidence vote before this seat is actually filled. So that's that three-seat majority will continue for some time, but it sh- could shrink to two if the Liberals put that seat back in the wind column. Sophie? February 14th, Valentine's Day. Thank you, Keith. Yeah. A win today for inmates and the B.C. Civil Liberties Association fighting indefinite solitary confinement in Canadian prisons, calling it inhuman and unconstitutional. Today, a B.C. court ruled in their favour. Ramina Dea explains what it means for inmates and how quickly the changes could be implemented. For every person that spent time in solitary confinement. A powerful address from the BC Civil Liberties Association to tens of thousands of prisoners across Canada. What's been done to you is very, very wrong. Today's victory, it belongs to you. (laughs) It's yours. The victory, a BC Supreme Court judge has ruled prolonged solitary confinement in Canadian prisons is unconstitutional, subjecting inmates to a significant risk of serious psychological harm, making them more dangerous when they get out. It matters because the point of the prison is, in the end, not only to punish, but to rehabilitate folks so that when they come back to our communities, they can play a productive role. It is designed to break you. It's designed to destroy you. Bobby Lee Worm spent three and a half years in the hole, confined to herself for 23 hours a day, minimal human contact. The United Nations says anything longer than 15 days amounts to torture. 
In another infamous case, Adam Kepe was subjected to 1,500 days in solitary confinement. Ashley Smith's time in segregation broke her. The 19-year-old strangled herself in an Ontario jail in 2007. These are modern-day dungeons. For now, the practice of indefinite solitary confinement continues. The court has given Parliament a year to draft legislation. The federal government has 30 days to decide if it will appeal. A spokesperson says the government is reviewing the ruling. Should there be an appeal from the federal government, however, we are prepared to defend this all the way. Ramina Dea, Global News. Good and bad news from the front lines of the opioid crisis today. Starting with the bad, a record 335 Vancouverites died of an overdose in 2017. Vancouver firefighters on the front line responding to more than four overdoses a day. But the good news is the number of people dying is trending down since May. One in nine calls used to be fatal, but that has now improved to one in 22 citywide. One in 29 on the downtown east side. Most people in British Columbia may either know somebody who's uh, been affected by the overdose crisis or knows a family affected. That's how, the, how high the numbers are. We can't forget behind these numbers are individuals and families who are affected. Every one of these deaths is preventable. So we can't uh, be satisfied that we're seeing a reduction in deaths when there are still preventable deaths occurring each and every month in, in, in the city. Some experts are suggesting drug vending machines to get clean opioids to addicts. Mayor Gregor Robertson says he plans to direct city staff to work with public health officials in supporting innovative treatments. When it comes to renewable energy, Canada lags far behind many other countries, despite the costs of producing wind and solar power dropping dramatically. And by the time the Site C project is built, experts say it'll be clear we missed an opportunity to do more with a lot less. Ted Chernecki reports. Despite those much-hyped announcements of new alternative energy projects in B.C. and in the rest of Canada, the fact is this country is almost dead last in the developed Western world. Any economy that doesn't entirely redesign itself to clean tech is incredibly naive. Take hydro dams out of the picture and Europe leads the way in developing renewable energy with most countries now producing about at least a quarter of all their power from the wind and sun. Brazil is 18%. Even Australia, China, the US, Japan are ahead of us. Only Canada, India and South Africa are less than 6% renewable. An expert who spent 20 years developing renewable energy in Europe has returned to BC to face the many new challenges here. There is more synergy between Hungary and Finland and Ireland than there is between Alberta and BC. And that brings us to Site C, where it was argued that another hydro dam just adds to BC's clean power generation. But BC still relies heavily on oil and gas. Fossil fuels make up somewhere between two-thirds and three-quarters of BC's total energy need. In Europe, everything's going electric. Cars, trucks, lawnmowers, you name it. And that's because the cost of generating electricity has been falling dramatically for more than a decade. Wind turbines cost half today of what it cost in 2009 when Site C was under consideration. It's even down almost 30% since Site C was approved just three years ago. And solar costs have fallen even further, down more than a third since 2014. The price of these technologies has come down phenomenally. That trend only goes one way. 
Meanwhile, going the other way is the cost of Site C. Everything's dropping in price except the cost of building a dam. Ted Chernecki, Global News. In the meantime, a new wrinkle tonight in the ongoing story of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin as the debate rages over whether it's really worth anything. A number of B.C. homeowners are selling their properties and now accepting Bitcoin. But is it a good idea? John Hua reports. It features more than 5,000 square feet of oceanfront luxury overlooking the beauty of Qualcomm Beach. The owners willing to say goodbye to this postcard of BC living for a virtual bag full of Bitcoin. We think there's a nice synergy between Bitcoin, which is a unique and emerging product, and our property, which is a very unique property. Translation, with a list price of 2.78 million Canadian dollars, anyone willing to have that much money in the volatile cryptocurrency could be a good candidate for a buyer with a few conditions. One of the things, of course, we need to be concerned about is the money laundering. So again, we're in the hands of our lawyers to make sure that everything is buttoned down legally. In Victoria, this vacant lot is also up for Bitcoin. The owner, sort of a cryptocurrency cowboy. Perhaps I could command a higher pricing slightly. Um, I could attract a buyer that maybe uh, wouldn't have come forward otherwise. And even with the Vancouver condo market on a roll, adding cryptocurrency brings in a lot of volatility. Take this condo where a unit is on sale for 67 Bitcoin. A month ago, that would be worth more than $1.6 million. Today, that drops down to just over $840,000. You may unintentionally sell the property for half of what you thought you were selling it for. A buyer may end up buying the property for twice what they thought it was for. The Real Estate Council of BC won't stop anyone from using Bitcoin, but wants people to know the risk and how hard cryptocurrency can be to trace. You could have someone in another country pretending that they live in Canada, that they live in Vancouver or another part of British Columbia. Um, you're not going to be able to trace them. Back in Qualcomm Beach, these home sellers at least anchoring offers in Canadian dollars hedging their bet the best they can when trading a home for Bitcoin. John Hua, Global News. Well, it looks like we'll be seeing a lot more double-decker buses around Metro Vancouver. TransLink's double-decker pilot project is going so well, they're about to order a bunch more. Ted Field has the details. Double the capacity, double the fun for suburban commuters. A transit trip from the Burbs during rush hour can be overcrowded coaches, so TransLink has been testing double-decker buses. It's pretty comfortable. I like being able to read while I commute. Uh, I think it's great. Uh, a lot more room. It's good. Yeah, it's comfortable. It's uh, still There's still seats available, so that's, uh, that's a good thing. It is a far cry from the packed standing room only buses that have plagued some routes. It's quite hard on the older buses to stand uh, on the uh, freeway. Uh, particularly with busy traffic to stop and go. TransLink says an online survey of double-decker passengers has been good. Overwhelmingly positive. Double-deckers are just so much fun to people, and generally it's the novelty factor is really big. With more and more people priced out of Vancouver and moving south of the Fraser, more transit options are needed. And we need the capacity, and these buses, these new double-decker buses, uh, fit that need. This has now led to a plan by TransLink to buy a fleet of double-deckers to replace the aging coaches that will soon be retired. We are uh, planning to go to tender this year uh, to test the market, see what's out there, but we will have about 32 double-decker buses on the road by 2019. Now, the nice thing about the double-decker is you get to come upstairs to the view lounge, but the one thing you have to watch for is bumping your head. They are not cheap, about a million dollars each, which is comparable to a trolley, 
but a trolley doesn't come with this kind of view. Ted Field, Global News. I have to duck. I, I won't have that problem. No. <laughs> you no, stay no. downstairs, I'll go upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> well, when it comes to shopping, it's all about convenience these days. And a new study finds that hands-free purchasing is about to transform the retail world yet again. Our consumer reporter, Andrew, joins us with more. And yeah, more and more people jumping on board to this concept. Thanks, you too. The push is on for people to shop by just talking to a digital assistant. And experts say over time, the traditional dialogue that exists with a salesperson could be challenged by conversational commerce. Alexa, play my sweet victory playlist everywhere. Okay. All you have to do is simply ask. The Amazon Echo hands-free speaker connects to the Alexa voice service to answer your questions. Google Home's voice-activated speaker came next, powered by the Google Assistant. Capgemini Consulting surveyed more than 5,000 consumers in the U.S. and Europe on voice assistant technology. 40% of those polled said they would use a voice instead of a mobile app or website. In three years, active users expect 18% of their total spending will be via voice assistant. That's a 500% increase, and 44% of users have expressed interest in using the technology for banking transactions. There's an increasing awareness on the part of private companies uh, around data protection and privacy protection. There's an increasing pressure on the part of governments uh, in terms of uh, data privacy. You're seeing that that specifically in Europe uh, uh, for now. And there's also a willingness on the part of consumers to trade off uh, some part of privacy against some part of convenience. And that will only happen with brands that, that consumers trust. And one more note, three or four years ago, Capgemini says similar surveys on online or mobile use found privacy was a number one concern for consumers, but it seems times have changed. And in case you're wondering, Google Home costs about $180 Canadian. Amazon Echo can be purchased from $130 Canadian. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can reach me. There's my email address at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. Well, here's some video that puts a lot of things in perspective. Students and teachers at a Puerto Rican school screaming and jumping for joy simply because after nearly four months, the power is back on. Like much of Puerto Rico, they've been in the dark since Hurricane Maria devastated the island. So good to see. Mm -hmm. Extreme weather of another kind is creating some havoc across the southern United States. A number of counties are under states of emergency as they deal with ice and snow they're just not accustomed to. Parts of the south crippled tonight as rare southern snow combines with record-breaking cold. Black ice startling drivers in Mississippi. Georgia, too, a crash on I-85 backing up traffic for miles. Snow in Shreveport. Very, very slippery. Shocking even veteran weather watchers. This is the farthest south I've ever covered snow in 26 years. It's still on the ground. Many southern cities also gripped by record cold. Just seven in Memphis, 15 in Austin, 20 in New Orleans. Those ill-prepared forced to improvise. Even places used to wintry weather seeing a messy commute today. And you're off school? School canceled yeah. in Worcester, Massachusetts for the third day this month. How hard was it to get him out of the house today? 
It wasn't as hard as normally is. Planes spent the day de-icing. Thousands of flights delayed or canceled nationwide. The combination of snow and cold air has North Carolina tonight under a state of emergency. Tomorrow morning's commute will be dangerous. A word of warning with at least three deaths across the South blamed on this storm already. Blake McCoy, NBC News. An historic agreement will change the tone of next month's Olympic Games in Pyeongchang, South Korea, and maybe provide some hope of de-escalating the nuclear crisis. South and North Korea have agreed to, refor- or to form their first unified Olympic team. Their athletes will also parade under one flag for the first time in 11 years during the opening ceremony. The two countries will also field a single women's hockey team, the first time they've ever had a combined team in one sport. Well, if you've ever failed in an attempt to lose weight, you may be very encouraged by new research that shows it's less about what you eat than when you eat it. It's called time-restricted feeding, and the results can be very dramatic. Katie Beck explains how it works. Come on. Life wasn't always this lively for Lorna Shelton. Here we go. Not long ago, she weighed close to 250 pounds. I had to have both knees replaced. A healthier diet helped her lose weight, but not enough. After I'd gotten 40 pounds off, the next 10 pounds seemed to take forever. And I needed to do something different. Shifting focus from what she was eating to when she was eating it. She ate meals earlier and over less time, eating only from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. She took off another 50 pounds. The pounds were just melting away. She got the idea from a study at the University of Alabama in Birmingham, testing something called time-restricted feeding. Eating in a narrow time period and then having an extended daily fast each day. Limiting eating to just eight hours and starting early. We found that the early time-restricted feeding helped improve fat burning. Meals take three to five hours to digest. By shifting eating earlier, food is metabolized by bedtime, leaving stored fat to burn. So you're actually burning while you're sleeping. Correct. And in fact, that's when we find the fat burning is highest. Results also show reduced blood pressure and better insulin processing. While the diet doesn't make you cut calories or entire food groups, experts say avoid junk food and binging. And during fasting hours, only drinks with zero calories, like black coffee or water. Lorna's results? Life-changing. I feel like I've added years to my life. Thanks to a simple shift in time. Katie Beck, NBC News, Atlanta. All right, meteorologist Christy Gordon joins us for a look at our forecast. And uh, pretty balmy if wet out there, Christy. Yes, and very windy today. We had Category 2 hurricane strength winds off the northern tip of Vancouver Island today. 163 kilometers an hour. Still about 2,000 people without power across Vancouver Island. I'll show you those winds in a second. But first, before we get into a forecast, if you have any complaints about our weather, check this out. A selfie by a woman in Russia in a remote part of Siberia. Temperatures hit minus, sorry, 66 degrees and froze her eyelashes. 
Yeah, so you have nothing to complain about. By the way, in that type of weather, your skin can freeze in less than two minutes if it's not covered up. Meanwhile, for our region, it has been mild um, right across the province, but it's the wind and the rain that we're contending with. Strongest winds were across Vancouver Island earlier today. The concern right now and through the evening hours really is the lower mainland. Abbotsford, just at 6 p.m. today, wind gusts up to 65 kilometers an hour. Now, that's below warning criteria. That's why we don't have any warnings, but still strong enough that we could see some power outages. So keep that in mind. The areas we're concerned about into the evening hours are generally along the water's edge of the lower mainland and the southern regions. White Rock, Langley, Surrey, out towards Abbotsford as well. It should ease off finally overnight, but it still be quite, quite gusty tomorrow. This is because of this system here, bringing waves of rain over our region for the next several days, everyone. Yes, we will be contending with this system for quite a while. It's mainly rain, lower elevation, but higher up, significant snow. Kootenai Pass, 25 centimeters tonight, tomorrow. Co- uh, Coca and uh, Highway 3 up to 20, and the connector could see 15 centimeters of snow. The bulk of that, by the way, will happen overnight tonight. It will ease off through the day tomorrow, but still significant uh, amounts. Now, with this type of pattern, we tend to get the majority of the rainfall or snowfall along the mountain regions, and you can see that here with this pattern. A lot of it across the coast, interior regions like Prince George and Quinell, and then all the way down through the southern interior. Not a lot for you. In fact, you'll enjoy some sunshine. It's mostly all across the mountain ranges that will see that precipitation. So for the south coast, rain at times tomorrow but when we see it, it could be pretty intense and we do have a risk of thunderstorms and we will be seeing this right through the next several days. Quick happy birthday to Avar Thompson celebrating 100 years today and I'll just show you our beautiful frosty eyelash guy from Port St. John. This is Bernie. Thanks to Lisa for that. Only minus three there, but still enough to put a little frost on the old eyelashes. Poor Bernie. All right. Thank you very much, Christy and Lisa for that photo. A meteor that came to Earth over Michigan did more than light up the sky. Dash cam and security video caught the meteor. First a cool blue and then that bright white. The American Meteorological Society's website crashed from so many people reporting the sighting. The meteor's sonic boom also registered a magnitude 2 on the closest seismometer. The emotional debate over whether the recognition of Canada's pioneers should be erased because of their controversial attitudes and actions has surfaced in B.C.'s capital. At issue is two streets in Vancouver and Victoria and the checkered history of the man they're named after. Nitu Garcher reports. Crutch began his work as a, a chief commissioner in April of 1864. Close to 100 people pack a public meeting in Victoria to discuss a short street with a long history. It's only two blocks long between Fairfield and Richardson. But it's the name and the baggage it carries that has some calling for a change. It's loaded. It's a loaded little word that needs to go. Victoria's Trutch Street is named after Sir Joseph William Trutch. The colonial politician was B.C.'s first lieutenant governor, a man considered an extreme racist even for his time. He in some ways was the Trump of his time with respect to Indigenous policy. B.C.'s home to some of Canada's smallest First Nations land reserves because of Trutch's major role in reducing their size. And that's why a community-led initiative to rename the street is getting support. That's a great way to start the healing journey for the truth and reconciliation. Even from those once adamantly opposed. I realized what an absolutely horrible human being he is. 
all the arguments, all the comments and thoughts have really changed my opinion on it tonight. The two-block residential street is still home to Trutch's former residence, now a heritage building. Critics say renaming would mean erasing history and could lead to a slippery slope of removing more names and even buildings. But last year, University of Victoria student Lisa Schnitzler successfully petitioned the institution to remove Trutch's name from a campus residence building. It's standing up to racism and this um, colonialism that Trutch stood for makes me a snowflake. They call me a snowflake. The city of Victoria has yet to receive a proposal to rename, but in 2013, the city of Vancouver got a request to rename its own Trutch Street in Kitsilano. It was denied, but the city has launched a process of possibly renaming some some city streets in part to recognize indigenous communities. Neetu Garcha, Global News, Victoria. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. I was going to say, I'm going to steal it. I didn't know we were coming back on. We, we are. Line. It's us in the TV. <laughs> Usually after the commercial, we come back on. Uh, that is true. Okay. Ready? Take it away. All right. Okay, it's now real. Freddie Montero is not coming back to the Whitecaps, signed a contract to play with Sporting Lisbon in Portugal, which is his old team. He was there from 2014 to 2016. Now, it was a long shot that the Whitecaps would get him back at a reasonable price to play this season. So it's too bad, but it's not a surprise. He's not coming back. But as Montero leaves, the newest Whitecaps striker, Kai Kamara, arrives. Yeah, that was hard. Actually, making up his own jersey is the easy part. The hard work for Kai Kamara will come when he pulls on his Whitecaps kit and tries to live up to the lofty expectations attached with being Vancouver's designated player striker. If he can score as many goals as the number he'll wear, acquiring the 33-year-old services will be a wise move by the Caps. I don't, yeah, I don't look at the numbers. I look at as the goal numbers, not the age. So, uh, you know, I'm enjoying it. I play... Um, every minute you know, of every game that I'm, I'm called up on to play and uh, I feel good. Uh, I still feel like you know, I can uh, produce a lot and uh, I, don't, you know, I don't really focus on that that much. Kamara's MLS production dipped to just 12 goals last year. In his previous two seasons, he racked up 31, 20 goals coming off of crosses. When you factor in how the Caps like to score using set pieces and crosses, Kamara could be a vital piece for Vancouver who officially said goodbye to Freddie Montero and his club leading 13 goals as Montero's heading back to Portugal's Sporting Lisbon. So the pressure for Kamara to score like Montero did last season is on. That's good. You know, players should be, players and coaches and clubs should be held accountable for, you know, if it's not going well. And uh, that's the pressure that, you know, you want to have as as, uh, as uh, as players or as an organization, you know, and to me, um, if I'm not scoring goals, put me on the bench. You know, it makes me show that, that I'm not doing well and I need to work a little bit harder. So I can't wait. I mean, yeah, if the pressure is going to come from the city, then that's great because then the city knows that when you're winning games, everybody's going to fill out the stadium. So we look forward to that. And he usually has good goal celebrations. Oh, midfielder Andrew Jacobson has retired from the Whitecaps and retired from soccer in general. He was a pro for 10 years. Played in four different countries. Vancouver was his last stop. He actually played for five different teams in MLS. Had four goals and 56 appearances with the Whitecaps over two seasons. Continuing on the retiring vein, uh, there has been some very good BC boys in Major League Baseball over the years. I think Larry Walker and Justin Morneau 
are on top of the list, both former league MVPs. They both won batting titles. And today, New Westminster's Justin Morneau made it official. He is retiring from playing to take a job with the Minnesota Twins front office. He didn't play at all last season, but the uh, bulk of his career was spent with Minnesota. That's where he won the AL MVP award. He was a guy who hit for power, but also hit for average. Case in point, when he was with the Colorado Rockies, he won the batting title in 2014. Had some concussion issues in his later years. Otherwise, he might still be playing. You never know. All right, Bruins, Habs in Boston. Montreal scored a goal in the first minute. Then the Bruins get on the board with some nice passing. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yes, goal. David Posternick, 1-1. And then Jonathan Drouin, his uh, big feet get in the way, and Ryan Spooner's pass goes in the net and makes a 2-1 for the Bruins, who actually haven't lost in regulation in 13 straight games. Let's go back to uh, last night. Dennis Shapovalov at the Australian Open. He gave it a good run. In fact, he probably should have won this against Joe Willie Songa. Look at this point. Shapovalov gets that, and then down the line. Oh, that's remarkable. Beautiful. In the fifth set, he was up 5-2. to 5-2, two. to two, and then lost five straight. And uh, Songa knocked him out. But as you watch Songa finish him off in the uh, fifth and final set, know that a lot of legends are giving Shapovalov love. John McEnroe said he's only 18, give him a couple of years, and this kid will be a top five player. That's how good McEnroe thinks he will be coming. Shapovalov sees this loss as part of the learning curve. I still feel I need to improve so much to get to, get to their level to compete with them day in and day out, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely feel like uh, if I'm playing the top of my game, I'm, I'm able to stay with these guys. But, uh, you know, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean I'm able to slack off. You know, I still have to go back and work hard so that uh, hopefully one day myself I can be in the top ten. There you go. Maybe higher. All right, thanks, Square. Thanks, Square. You're welcome. Here's Andrew now with a preview of Global News at 11 tonight. Anne. Thanks, Chris. And we are talking to a Burnaby resident who says City Hall hasn't been listening to the community's concerns about pedestrian safety on Caribou Road. This morning, a teenage girl was struck and died. Will this force the city to act? And the International Olympic Committee paying a visit to Calgary today. That city hoping to be considered for the 2026 Games. How did the discussion go? And is BC expected to play a role if the bid goes ahead? We'll have those stories and more when you join us tonight at 11 o'clock. Chris, Sophie. Excellent, and thank you. Up next, how the wrong number led to exactly the right guy. Home with 25 new centimeters of snow and a base of 200. Grouse with a base of 225, Cypress 230, Sasquatch 224. Revelstoke with a base of 179, Manning Park 125, Powder King 180, Mount Washington with 27 new centimeters of snow and a base of 125. Big White with a base of 190, Silver Star 178, Sun Peaks 147, Apex 15 new centimeters of snow and a base of 167. Coming up on ET Canada, who just became the highest paid dramatic TV actor in Hollywood? Here's a hint. Her name is in the title of the show. Plus, Jeannie Becker on the legacy and the death of Gianni Versace. That's all coming up at 7 right after the news hour. But for now, back to you, Chris and Sophie. 
Thank you, Cheryl. Well, technology is supposed to make our lives easier, but many of us have experienced the frustration of a glitch in a new gadget. No doubt. But for one Toronto woman, that frustration led to friendship, connecting her with a man she'd never met. Tom Hayes has the story. Business is busy for Sun Moon. I do coach training at universities and at the center, research center here. You're busy. I am absolutely busy. I also work as Sunnybrook. So Sun often needs assistance, bit here, bit there, and recently from this man, who somehow became Sun's receptionist. Most people would have just hung up. <laughs> okay. Well, I did not do that. The relationship Sun has with the assistant on Bay Street is a strange one. They're about 10 kilometers apart. They never knew each other. And this all started because of a glitch. So I got myself this lovely watch. The Apple Watch. Yes, the Apple Watch. And then the the one with the cellular functions and everything. But the cell service was sending all her calls to a complete stranger, who for close to two weeks took it upon himself to be the personal secretary for someone he'd never met. So you were texting her to tell her about her business? Correct. Right. Exactly. He was getting 20 plus calls looking for me. Right. So, So that's a lot of business for you. Yes, it is. They never did meet, but developed a friendship over the phone, which leads us to maybe the toughest call Mahesh received from Hassan's mom, who started grilling the strange man. So your mom thought you had a boyfriend. Yeah, that's right. And what did you say to her? And I said, well, you know, no, it's not my boyfriend nor hidden, like, you know, secret husband. So, mother, please, don't you worry. So, not her boyfriend and not a chance. She says her mom was at first concerned and then she was hopeful. <laughs> okay. I want to say I'm married and I'm happy. Oh, oh. The cell glitch was fixed late last night, but not before a complete stranger saved thousands of dollars in business for someone he didn't know. Maybe one more connection is still in order. I would love to take him out for like coffee or tea for sure. <laughs> Tom Hayes, Global News. Cute story. <laughs> Just to say thanks. Oh, yeah. so nice. Oh. And, you know, the mom, she was momentarily <laughs> <laughs> in there. Oh, well. How did the mom know? Well, she called the she called who she thought was her daughter. And oh, I see. Okay, I him. thought mom was checking her phone.